Okay, the story begins, friends. Welcome. We are on page 41, continuing the second blessing that precedes the Shema. This is my favorite part of davening. I'm really excited about this class. This is, I don't know why, There's for some reason this particular part of the Siddur, this bracha, resonates. We talk about Sorry, God's what, love. What, 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 what page is it on? We're on page 41. Wait a minute. You don't have a sitter while you're driving, do you? No, but I if I uh -oh. have to take a mental image. So okay. I, I know it's on page 41. You memorized it. Okay. No, I'm just I'm just yeah. I'm messing with you. Okay. It's the middle of page 41, John. Thank you. <laughs> the second blessing, the, the blessing that precedes the Shema, it's that one long paragraph. It goes all the way to the top of 42. Ahavat olam ahavtanu this everlasting love that God with which God loves us. And in this blessing, how does God express this love? He expresses it through the Torah. The theme of this blessing, there's the dual theme here, God's love to us and our connection to him specifically through Torah. Because the truth is that when God gave us the Torah, God wasn't our teacher at Mount Sinai. He didn't just give us information. He gave us something much deeper than that. He gave us himself. There's an important difference between a teacher and a spouse. They're both givers. They're both in positions of influence. A teacher can be an incredible, incredible influence, life-changing. But at the end of the day, what is a teacher giving to a student? Something that they possess, information, wisdom, perspective. Don't become your spouse's teacher. It doesn't work. Because what is a spouse supposed to give? They're not supposed to give information, wisdom, perspective. A spouse is supposed to give themselves. And you see this by this is true not only spiritually or emotionally or physically or socially. It's true in all levels. It, it, it's true. I mean, it's true even physically. It's true biologically. Physiologically. What is a husband giving a wife? Literally a piece of himself. The Torah, what is God giving us through the Torah? He's not just sharing his perspective, although that is a part of it. He's sharing literally a piece of himself. We say that God loves us. And by means of that love, he literally hands over a piece of him. That's the Torah. We refer to this love as an everlasting love. Look in the Hebrew, right? Look in the English there for a second. Lord our God, you have loved us with an everlasting love. In the Hebrew, Ahavas Olam, Ahavat Olam. So actually, in some sitters, other sitters you might be familiar with, there's the text Ahava Rabbah. Remember that before? Are you familiar with that? Have you seen that in other sitters? Right? That's it. That's an old Ashkenaz tradition for it to say Ahava Rabbah. The Sephardic tradition and the tradition among the 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 text following the tradition of Arizal's Avat Olam, 
And the truth is, this debate goes way back to the Talmud. Tractate brachas. You're learning brachas now, right, Mike? Okay, you'll get there. When you get to page 11b, you get to a debate. Is it Ahava Rabbah, great love, or is it Ahava Olam, everlasting love? And there's a debate in the Talmud, and that debate has both traditions, are, are beautiful traditions. And the reason why the Chabad sitter chose Ahavat Olam is discussed in Tanya chapter 43. 44, sorry. Where it talks about the difference between what Ahava Rabbah is and what Ahavat Olam is. Ahava Rabbah is great love. Ahavat Olam is practical love. Because what does Olam mean? Literally world, right? So Ahavat Olam, Olam means everlasting. It's an eternal love. It's a love that doesn't stop. It's this love that God has to us that keeps going. It's a very practical love. It's a very relatable love. Ahava Rabbah described amongst the Kabbalists a love that is not necessarily achievable by everybody. And that's why the, Kabbal the the texts of the Siddur that follow Kabbalistic tradition, just for the most part, not so much the Ashkenaz Siddur, but for the most part, the more Sephardic and, 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 and Chabad Siddur, they'll use the text Ahavat Olam. But I recently read another insight from Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Shinerson, and here's how he puts it. When we call this worldly love, it's actually a metaphor. We love worldly pleasures. We're very worldly people. I'll prove it to you. If we put out a sign, um, Talmud class, study Talmud, study, or class on Jewish law, learn what God wants you to do. Not very marketable, right? <laughs> You're, I'm going to show up to synagogue so the rabbi could tell me what to do. But what if I put up a sign that says we're having a barbecue, a community barbecue, and we're going to have meaningful Torah discussion at this barbecue? It's a lot more worldly. It's a lot more appealing. Our attendance is going to be astronomically greater. We're worldly people, right? That's the animal soul. That's the way we are. That's the way we're wired. The God, the 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 love that we have toward the world, perhaps it's more of a lust than a love, but whatever. That drive that we have toward worldliness is how we can envision the love that God has toward us. The love affair we have, the obsession we have with worldly pleasure, is this that that's what we can picture. The love that God has to us. So tomorrow morning, you open up the sitter and you get to this part of davening. Think about that. When you say, olam, when you say, Lord our God, you've loved us with an everlasting love. Think about how powerful that love is. I just lost my pencil. Oh, here it is. I always need something to fidget with. Otherwise, okay. Think about how 
See, we're talking about this great love that God has to us, and I'm stuck in my pencil. Um, <laughs> think, think about how, think about how powerful that love is that God has to us. We can, and we we can picture it. We can relate to it very practically. Why are we discussing God's love, and specifically through the Torah, at this point? Why is this relevant now? Well, there's actually three reasons among various commentaries. Number one, the Shema is very much about love. The Shema is where we declare that God is one. God is the only one. God is the only true thing. Hashem Echad. And what is our emotional reaction to that? You should love the Lord your God. So to get us in that right frame of mind, we're talking about that love now. That's one explanation. Another explanation, what was the previous blessing? And by the way, you'll see all these three explanations come together. What was the previous blessing? We spoke about the angels praising God. How did the previous blessing end? God is the creator of the luminaries. Baruch atah Hashem, Yotzer HaMeorot, He's the Yotzer, He's the creator of Meorot, of light, of, of luminaries. And the angels understand God as a creator much much more clearly than we do, right? So we we're talking about the angels' perspective in that blessing as well. But here's the interesting thing. God is the creator of a luminary, but when does the luminaries shine? In the daytime. When does the Torah illuminate our lives? All the time. We're taking our praise to the next level. We can connect to God not only when there's light, but all the time. We have the ability to generate that light. And specifically through the Torah. I feel like I'm seeing double here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, but here's something fascinating. And, and, and we actually discussed this in our Tanya class, chapter 49. Think about this for a moment. The angels are praising God, which is what the theme of the previous blessing is. And there was a purpose to that. Because when we experience how the angels praise God, we understand where our animal soul once came from and all, you know, that un it's untamed energy that can be angelic, rerouting and rechanneling that energy. But I, I, you think about this for a moment. Think about the clarity that an angel has relative to us. We have our doubts. We have our confusion. We have to work on our faith. We have to develop our faith. Even then, how do we emotionally respond? Occasionally, we'll be passionate. There's times we'll be less passionate. We are so human, man. <laughs> we really are. Our 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 soul gets it fine, but we can easily be cynical. We have the ability to be cynical. Angels cannot be cynical. You can't be. Just like the Jews at the splitting of the Red Sea or at Mount Sinai cannot be cynical. You can't be. How could you be cynical? You you see it, right? Angels cannot be cynical. 
at least relative to us. Maybe they have their own level of cynicism. So the angels have this ability, this deep ability to appreciate God. And we spoke about the Kadusha that the angels recite, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts who fills the earth with his glory. We spoke about the Ofanim, the Holy Chayot, with a mighty sound. They bless God. And we're envisioning how the angels on, are on this divine chariot where they're praising God. And then we flip to the next blessing on 41. And we say, who is God's true love? Us. That is wild, man. That's crazy. How much? How well do we understand God? Does our passion come anything near to an angel, as we described? Yet, who is God's true love? He loves us. That is a wild statement. I, I this is homework. I don't usually give homework, but tomorrow when you open the sitter, and you get to this part of the oven, you got to think about this. Because it is just, um, it is trippy. <laughs> this is wild. Why does God love you more than an angel? The angel gets him better. And the answer is, an angel's relationship with God is very much defined by how well it understands God. Which doesn't mean anything because nobody really understands God. <laughs> but our relationship with God is not defined by our understanding of God. It's deeper than that. It's innate. In other words, I'm not connected. An angel's connected because of how it feels about God. We feel God because we're connected. It's the other way around. We recite this blessing of describing God's love toward us because it's in contrast to the angels, which prepares us for the Shema. How, how passionate or how connected is the angel to God? However much it understands God, which... <laughs> in other words, its relationship with God is defined by an intellectual experience. Or an emotional experience. Our relationship with God is not defined by our experiences. But actually the other way around. Our experiences result because we are connected to God. Which means if we don't have that experience, we're still connected. This is an everlasting love. It's a worldly love. These angels are burning for God. And he says, guys, I found my true love. <laughs> They're down here on the earth. This is an incredible model, by the way, for a healthy marriage. God is essentially saying, these angels seem to get me and want to connect to me. But I'm going to choose to love to whom I'm connected to. My love is going to be founded on connection instead of my connection going to be founded on love. When connections are founded on love, connections uh, 
are as strong as the love. And love is a feeling. Feelings come and go. But when the love is founded on the connection, the connection ain't going anywhere. Neither is the love. It's an avat olam. It's an everlasting love. It's a worldly love. I'll tell you a great story. About 200 years ago, there was a young yeshiva boy. And this boy was smart. You got to be careful with smart people. Mm. One of the biggest blessings that you guys have is that your rabbi is not that smart. <laughs> We're just very humble. Be because when we're too smart, we we think uh, we think we know everything, and it's hard to have faith. It's it's don't be too smart. It's it's you know we we have a tradition and we have faith, and I, I I say that slightly facetiously because there is a balance between our faith being intelligent and not just being a uh, um, walking blindly. But at the end of the day, the core of everything is our faith. Because however smart you are, I mean, the angels are also smart, right? But God didn't chose us because of how well we understand him. Because we're smart, right? It's, it's deeper than that. And that's what faith is. It's a, it's a much deeper level of connection. Okay, so you had this young yeshiva boy who's smart. Very, very smart. And he starts getting into philosophy. Very dangerous. He starts reading various philosophy books. I mean, some of them Jewish philosophy books. But essentially, he's trying to define his connection based on his understanding. And his mind takes him to all sorts of crazy places. And he starts reading all sorts of various philosophies that are out there. He got so far that he left his community and actually left Judaism. And he, I guess, discovered some sort of idolatrous philosophy. And he books a meeting to meet with a priest in a church. On his way to the church, the streets are quite crowded i guess the church was right near a synagogue and the streets were quite crowded with jewish people He's pushing his way through he didn't understand why it's such a busy day and he noticed he recognizes somebody that knows him from his previous lifetime and they say um they they, they um meet each other they catch up briefly and he says where are you going you know, he says to him, why, by the way, why is why are the streets so busy? He says, how do you not know why the streets are so busy? You don't know what's going on? He's not in the community anymore. He doesn't know what's going on. Reb Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev is coming to town. Reb Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev was a, co a colleague and a machutan. You know what a machutan is? There's no English word for machutan. So I can't tell you what it is. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> There's no English word for it, which is fascinating. A machutan means... Let's say your child marries somebody else's child, right? So your your child's parent-in-law is your machutan. 
So to, like my parents and Chavi's parents, right? Their relationship with each other, they're called mechutzanim. There's no, there is no English word because in American culture, there's no relationship there. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, that, but, but that's called the mechutzanim. So Reb Levi Tchak of Bardichev and Rabbi Shner Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, were mechutzanim and colleagues. They became mechutzanim afterwards, but they're either children or grandchildren, I forget, married each other. Anyways, Reb Levi Tchak Bardichev was coming to town. He says, haven't you heard? No, I didn't hear. He says, why don't you come and see? He says, okay. And he totally forgot about where he was going, which is amazing, which is amazing divine providence. And he goes to the synagogue where Levi Yitzchak Vaitichev was there. The people wanted to see him pray because it was a bit of a scene. It wasn't a show. It was a scene. There's a difference. It was a scene because it was something to see. Levi Yitzchak Vaitichev was not performing. He was talking to God. And he would talk to God with the sitter and it was like, wow, God is not philosophical to this man. God is very real to this gentleman. Check up later the uh, on YouTube. Kaddish of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak He has a tune for Kaddish. And prior to him saying Kaddish, he has this whole prelude of this prayer that comes from the heart. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Abarditchev is up to this prayer as he walks into the shul. Avas olam, avat olam. And Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Abarditchev says, and I wish I would have brought the text with me from where I read this, but I didn't. So I'll have to paraphrase rather than quote. But something to the effect of, of, of a personal supplication, God Almighty, your love for us, is incredible. And he starts articulating what the prayer says in his own words. Your love for us is incredible. Your love for us is deep. Your love for us is passionate and personal. Empower us to experience that love toward you. And everybody's mesmerized. And this guy <laughs> who was so uh, perplexed in his religion is just like mesmerized. And now Rebbe Levi's just starts articulating the words. Hashem and the guy is just listening. And his doubts just go away because his soul is burning. In one moment, he got it all back. Reb Levi Yitzchak Vardichev sees this fellow. He grabs him. He pulls him in toward to where he was standing. He didn't let him go the whole day. Finishes praying. and he, <laughs> I don't know, he sensed something. He didn't say anything, but he, he's holding him. And he continues praying. The guy's doubts disappeared. Gone. Because he was able to not just verbalize that God loves him. Through this prayer, he was able to experience it. From the uh, paragraph, this paragraph of the prayer, count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 11 lines from the top, from the top of the paragraph. So up until this point, we ask God to empower us to be proficient in Torah study, right? I'm going to go, um, right, bring us... 
bring the laws, help us carry out your will, help us study, help us teach, right? Help us engage in your Torah properly. We then say, enlighten our eyes in your Torah. Cause our hearts to cleave to your commandments in the Hebrew. It's right by the period in the Hebrew. You know the song, right? Illuminate our eyes with your Torah. Now, it's interesting. We literally said a couple lines upward, empower us to study Torah. Why are we again, several lines later, saying illuminate our eyes with your Torah? So one way to look at it is there's studying Torah, there's understanding it, but then there's seeing, there's connecting to Torah on a deep emotional level, allowing that to become our perspective, allowing divine wisdom, our innate love connection with God to be our perspective on life. That's what we want. So tomorrow, when you recite, think about that. I want the Torah to become my perspective. You know what a Torah perspective is? The difference between a Torah perspective and a non-Torah perspective? I was just reading about this in a talk uh, from, from the Rebbe. 1952. He was saying that the way we need to raise our children or the way really we need to raise our own selves, but our, the, the, it has to impact the, the outer environment. Nothing else exists other than God. What do you mean? There's a world here. But it only exists for God. It doesn't really exist. In other words, you're going to say to me, hey, first of all, where's the Diet Coke? Right? But you're going to say, Josh, you're holding seltzer, right? You're not going to say you're holding a can. And in the can, there's seltzer. The can is irrelevant, right? It's the seltzer that matters. There's seltzer. Okay, there's a world, but there's a purpose for the world. So it's the purpose that really matters. It's a purpose that really exists. Well, so And the example the Rebbe gave was, without this perspective, you see fertile soil, you see somebody watering the soil, growing a tree. Oh, that tree grows an esrog. Oh, let me do a mitzvah with it. An esrog, right? It's the other way around. God created the soil just so you could plant that esrog tree, just so you could use the esrog. Otherwise, you don't need that tree. You don't need that soil. None of it's relevant. Other than how it supports its creator. I think I offended somebody. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Other than how it supports its creator. It's, if, you, if you describe what you see, it's fine. It's the same thing. You could say it's semantics. But the perspective is much deeper. And that's what means. Illuminate my eyes with your Torah. Our eyes with your Torah. Connect our heart with your mitzvot. Well, if I see life from a Torah perspective, then what is my relationship with mitzvahs? It's not going to be I'm just doing it. Connecting with it. It's part of who I am. It's not just a tradition that I perform. It's me. You mess with mitzvahs, you mess with me, right? I take it personally. And because of that, I'm invested. 
Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing can stop me because it's me. There's certain things you could stop me from doing. I love Diet Coke, but at the end of the day, you can get in between me and Diet Coke. You could. <laughs> you could. Not everybody believes me, huh? I see that cynical. Uh... <laughs> you can't get between me and a mitzvah because I'm a Jew. You can't get, you, you can't. You can try. The hate of horror tries all the time, right? And the way we get to that state is not just studying the Torah, but seeing life from the Jewish perspective, having putting those lenses on. And now our mitzvah, our connection to mitzvahs is incredible. Look at the next line. I'm going to show you in the Hebrew because it, it, it's going to make more sense here. Do you see it? Viachid, the first line, the first uh, word of the line is Viachid. Viachid comes in the word, it means to designate, like Yichud, to, to unite. To unite Levavenu, our hearts, Ahava, to love. Will Yiran to revere at Shemecha your name. In addition to seeing life from a Torah perspective, in addition to, because of that, connecting to mitzvahs on a very deep level. We say, God, unite our hearts to, to love you, which literally means designate, let our heart be designated toward you. But there's another interpretation. Why does it say hearts in the plural? As if we have two hearts. The answer is because we have two hearts. We have our animal soul and we have our divine soul. God, we want these to be in sync. We want to love you, not just with our divine soul, which is quite easy. You don't have to do anything to love God with your divine soul. You just have to awaken it. But we want our animal soul, our animal drive, our worldly drive, right? God loves us as we experience worldly pleasure. We want that worldly pleasure to be directed toward, toward God. We want this relationship to be conscious. To be a craving, not just to be a value. We want to have this inner alignment. We want these hearts to be united. And you know what the result of that is? Take a look at the next line. Velo nevosh. We pray to God, let us not be put to shame, disgraced, or stumbling. forever and ever. If we see life from, a, there's a whole sequence here. If we see life from a Torah perspective, illuminate our eyes. We're enlightened. And because of that, we connect to mitzvahs on a very deep level. We're not just performing them. And we work on ourselves to unite our hearts, to, make, to align ourselves, to make our relationship with God conscious. What happens is we develop an incredible level of deep confidence. And we have no shame. We become shameless. Shameless could some being shameless could sometimes be a bad thing, but but in the context of being a proud Jew, it's a very good thing. Very good to become shameless. We get that confidence to want to wear our keep and sit in public. 
or to want to stand up for our values or to want to do a mitzvah or to eat or to do whatever it is, despite it being um, perhaps difficult in our social contexts. But through this prayer, we can develop that inner strength. And you know what happens? We ultimately say several lines down, God, bring us to peace. May our arts from all the corners of the earth. This is going to radiate. This love that we're experiencing with this blessing as a prelude to the Shema is an incredible, deep, powerful love. It's expressed through the Torah. It's going to work its way into our perspective, our behavior, our emotional alignment. We're going to have we're going to be shameless because of it. And it's going to influence the entire world, inspire the entire world. Okay, homework. When we recite this prayer tomorrow morning, imagine what you're saying the Shema after this. Now you say the Shema. We'll talk about this next week. Now you say the Shema. There's an incredible context in which you're saying the Shema. You're declaring God as one, as the truth. You're ready to experience. You're ready for that experience. Okay, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. 